to bring to this pulpit my oldest son. Amen. This will be his second time to stand behind this desk. And I, I know that God has given him a word. I know that he has studied and prepared himself. But I also know, because I'm a preacher, that there is a spiritual element there that, that is not quantifiable in hours of study or in, in, in our preparation and time. There's a transfer that's about to happen in the spirit. The anointing of God is about to settle on this young man's life as he makes himself a willing vessel. And God, not, not Rockland McCall, but God, the Bible said the minister speaks the oracle of God, the very word of God. God's about to speak into your life. Amen. Would you just open your heart and say, Lord, I want to hear what you're saying to me. I want to hear a word from you. Amen. Somewhere in the words that are about to be said, amen, God's going to communicate a message to your life. I want him to have his way. Would you put your hands together and praise the Lord as Brother Rockland comes to preach the word of God. Praise the Lord. Felt uh, remain standing for the uh, reading of the word. If uh, I don't sit you down afterwards, my mother will be sure to remind me. Uh, we'll be reading from Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, for those of you that have your Bibles out, or your iPhones, or your iPads, or your many other tablet devices. And it's also probably going to be up there. There we go. Okay, so it begins at Acts chapter 11, verse 25. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him... He brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. This verse tells the origins of the moniker adopted by the many members. Oh, never mind. You may be seated. See? See, this is why you have a mother. This verse does, in fact, tell the origins of the name adopted by the members of today's church, Christians. This name, however, is not made by the people who were called it. Uh, in fact, it says they were called Christians, not they called themselves Christians. So who came up with that name, Christians? In this verse, we see the first century church just having moved to Antioch, fleeing the persecution found in Jerusalem. The people of Antioch had heard of Jesus, the miracle-working Messiah of the Jews, and on meeting the people of the church, the citizens of Antioch, saw that they were followers of this man. The citizens of Antioch, being the humans that they were, decided to label the newcomers. Now, we're humans. We like to put labels on things, everything. That's why we have billions and billions and billions of words in our English language that really don't make any sense. But they made a label for them, and they called them Christians. But why call them that? Well, you see, Christian means Christ-like. So the members of the early church were so much like Jesus Christ that this man that the Antiochians, Antiochians, I guess, had heard of, the people of Antioch, that they called them by his name. They said, these people are like Jesus. We'll call them Christ-like. So they became Christians. But what made them so much like Jesus that they would be called Christ-like? 
Or to be Christian is to be more than just a follower of Christ. It means acting upon his teachings just as he did. So what did Christ teach and do? Firstly, Jesus taught prayer and fasting. In Matthew 6, 9 through 13, it reads, After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'm sure many of you have memorized that in Sunday school. And if you haven't talked to mom, she can help you figure that one out. (laughs) But this, this passage comes from Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. You see, Jesus taught prayer and fasting as powerful weapons of spiritual warfare. When his disciples asked about how to expel a demon, Jesus replied, Only with prayer and fasting do these come out. Jesus did more than just talk about prayer and fasting, though, you see, after his baptism, the first, thing, the first thing that Jesus did was go into the wilderness to fast and pray for a month. It is here that Jesus showed the church how to resist temptation with just these three words. It is written. This brings us to the study of Scripture, which Jesus also taught. Matthew 22 and 29 reads, Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Again, Jesus put his teachings into works. Jesus revealed the scriptures to the, rab- to the rabbis at a young age in the temple when they went to Jerusalem. Jesus also talked of himself to people as a fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophecies quoting these scriptures. Jesus even taught a Bible study. Jesus was traveling on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 shortly after his resurrection was discovered by Peter. This is before he's talked to anyone except Martha and Mary who came to look upon his grave. He was traveling on the road to Emmaus and he met two men who were also traveling and who were talking about Jesus. So he began to talk with them about Jesus. They didn't recognize him, you see. And uh, he was giving them basically a Bible study. The scripture says in Luke 24 and 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So on this journey to Emmaus, he talked them from the beginning of the Bible through the end of the Old Testament about Jesus in the Old Testament. So he knew his scriptures well enough to show you the entire Bible or at that time, what was the entire Bible. This ministering on the road to Emmaus brings us to the next facet of what Jesus Christ taught. He taught witnessing and ministry. He said to his disciples in Acts 1 and 8, to be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. As far as practicing what he preached, the entire last three years of Jesus' life were dedicated to ministering. He traveled from town to town speaking to crowds in parables, and he used these parables and worldly examples to reach even the common man with this great new news, the ministry of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he ministered not only in words, he ministered through his actions. And this brings us 
to one of the last things that Jesus taught upon. He taught not only to pray and fast, but to use the power you get from praying and fasting to perform signs and wonders. We like to call them miracles. This Jesus taught largely through example. Now, we all know the stories, the wild man of Gadara who was liberated in just a few words, the woman with the issue of blood who touched the hem of his garment and was healed, the centurion who had faith that Jesus could heal his servant, and the multitudes that were fed by the hands of the master in the storm that bowed to just three words. Jesus walked in our world and wrought miracles, telling his disciples this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than he these shall he do. That's in Luke chapter 14, verse 12, if you want to fact check me there. So what he's saying is, I've calmed storms, you know, I've, uh, I've healed the blind, I've uh, healed women with issues of bloods, so I've fed 5,000 people with a couple of fish and some bread, and uh, you're going to do this and more. He taught that the disciples of Jesus, the church, would do miracles. But why perform miracles in the first place? As a matter of fact, what's the purpose of any of this teaching and performing? Why shouldn't anyone pray and fast or read the scripture, minister of the works of God? Well, there is personal salvation to be gained. I mean, but Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't stop after he was baptized by John, and he didn't decide to become a hermit and live safely alone where no temptation would come to face him, where he could just live out a perfect life and be sinless and be saved. He could have, he could have done that. But instead, he sought out the lost. He literally ate lunch with the publicans and sinners, you know, those people that nobody wants to hang out with. Well, yeah, he went and ate lunch with them, and he taught the word of God anywhere people would listen. Well, why? He loved the lost. Jesus was the shepherd that he himself spoke of in Luke 15, 4 through 6, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he called together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. He had a passion for the lost, he sought them out and taught them, rejoicing when they were saved. Jesus taught his disciples to love the lost with every word he spoke. He dedicated his life to the lost sheep of Israel. He went so far as to bear their sins upon his shoulders and carry them to an old rugged cross to die with him. It was this love that the people of Antioch saw in the church the love for the lost that Jesus so demonstrated. They saw a church bearing the likeness of Jesus Christ. They saw a church that prayed and fasted. Acts 1 and 14 reads, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Acts 13 and 3 reads, And when they had fasted, they prayed and laid their hands on him and they then sent them away. And then in Acts 27, Paul had to convince the church to stop a 14-day fast. I don't remember the last time we did a 14-day fast, but Lord bless them. They saw a church that studied the word of God. Acts 17, 11 reads, They received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Philip even took a page from Jesus' book and taught a Bible study. In Acts 8 and 30, and Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet 
or heard, heard him read the prophet Esaias, or Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And then proceeded to give the man a Bible study. They saw a church that witnessed and ministered about Jesus. From the Apostle Peter's message on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 to the ministry of Stephen the table waiter in Acts 7, the first century church was one that ministered to literally anyone who would listen. Paul even carried the message of, uh, of Jesus over the Mediterranean to far-off lands, ful fulfilling Jesus' charge that we spoke of earlier to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. They saw a church that worked miracles. Peter healed the lame man in Acts 3 and raised Dorcas back to life in Acts 9. Paul cast out spirits in Acts 16, resurrected, resurrected Eutychus in Acts 20, and just shook off a viper's bite in Acts 28. The book of Acts records the works of the first century church, and it describes a church that was a group of people following the teachings and the actions of Jesus Christ. The people of Antioch watched the events of the book of Acts unfold and saw the people for what they were, not just followers or disciples of a religion, for there were many religions at the time, but people trying to live like Jesus Christ had lived. So they called them Christ-like or Christians. Now the word Christian had strong meanings at its conception, as we just talked about, but words, after great use, tend to become diluted. See, literary professors and linguists kind of mourn our society of today, what they see as the death, or at least the partial destruction, of the English language. You know, in our casual speaking, text, talk, field, world, we kind of mess it up a bit. They say that the meanings of words are rapidly deteriorating. So that these words become shells and hollow with very little of their former meaning. The words that are most abused or among them, they say, are literally. Originally an adverb that describes something as having actually happened, literally is now commonly used when you exaggerate things. Like literally is literally the most literally over-exaggerated word ever. Literally. Hero and epic. A hero was once a person such as Achilles or Odysseus. And their journeys across the world and their battles with gigantic monsters of epic proportions were often described as epics. Now, anyone who has done something abnormal is a hero. And any action can be called epic. A search of the tag, hashtag my hero, on Twitter yields posts about everyone from pro wrestlers to mothers and actors. Not that mothers aren't amazing, but I don't think the average mother has to battle hydras and cyclopses, or cyclopi, or whatever the plural of cyclops is. But then again, who knows? <laughs> Definitely. A word that once applied the absence of doubt is now thrown around paired with the word maybe. You ever heard, I'll definitely maybe do that? Or I'm going to definitely buy that, and then they don't actually do it definitely has lost its meaning, or it's a, at least a diluted form of its meaning. In other words, it's OCD, or obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, I am very guilty of this one. This is one of many clinical terms that describes a serious mental disorder that affects how the brain works, but now they're thrown around 
to describe any idiosyncrasy. If I like my Skittles eaten in color order, then obviously I'm OCD. Oh, wait, no, I'm not. I'm just a little picky. <laughs> Love. Love is one of these words and probably one of the most used ones. Once an idea reserved for eternal emotion, capable of bearing all things, this word is now tossed around as casually at a ball in a backyard game of catch. Starving's another one. No one ever gets hungry or peckish anymore. We don't even feel snacky. We go straight from full to I'm starving to death. The final one of these words I'm going to use is great. See, once a word meaning something that was immense or larger than life, great has become basically good or average. These words have all been used to the point that their meanings have reached their current diluted states. They get used and used and overused until they literally mean nothing. You can test this yourself. If you say any word up to about 30 times, it starts losing all meaning. I would suggest you try it, but not right now. I'm sort of doing something. Um, While my list was certainly not all-inclusive, it did fail to cover one word that I do want to talk about. Christian. The name given to the praying, fasting, Bible-reading, Jesus-ministering, miracle-working, Holy Ghost-filled church members in the first century is now nothing more than a broad generalization for anyone who has ever set foot in a church house. We live in one of the most Christian areas of our nation, but what signs are there to show it? Where are they? Where are the prayer warriors who can touch heaven? Where are the fasters who starve and weaken their flesh? Where are the studiers of God's words that daily sharpen their sword? Where are the ministers who will teach those who are lost? Where are the miracle workers, the healers, the demon exercisers, the storm calmers? Where are the lovers of the lost? I can't find them. I keep looking, but all I see are Christians. If it had been today's church that had gone to Antioch, the people of today's Christians, would they have called us Christians? Would they have given us that name? I seriously doubt it. I mean, what makes us as a whole Christ-like? How are we different? Why is there any reason to call us Christian? Now, we do a good job adopting our Sunday morning facade so that the church will see that we are Christians. But the church didn't come up with the name. It was the people of Antioch, the ones that they talked to at the grocery store and the men and women they worked with, the lost people that will never set foot in a church. These people had heard firsthand accounts of Jesus and knew the church fit the description they had been given. What would the people you know or who know about Jesus in your life say about you? Your Catholic neighbor, does he know you are a prayer warrior, the backslidden secretary at your work? Has she ever heard you witness about Jesus? And does your Baptist boss see you as someone to go to prayer for when he is sick? If the musicians would come. But what about people who don't know Jesus? I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't exactly live in Antioch. Jesus didn't die just a couple days ago. And many people have only heard about Jesus secondhand or have barely heard of them at all. Like I said, if uh, you set once one foot in a church house on Easter when you're seven and then go back home and stay there the rest of your life, you're still a Christian. And so you know about Jesus, but you don't know about Jesus. So these people can't really say you're a Christian because they, can't really, they don't really know what Christ 
is. They don't know who to compare you to. So to these people, to people who don't know who Jesus is, Christian stops being a comparison, and it becomes an example. To the lost who don't know Jesus, you are Christian, so you are Christ-like. And the converse must also be true. Christ is like you. So that begs the question, are we, an ex- are we an example of how Jesus Christ lived? Would your dollar general cashier say Jesus was, or what would your dollar, ca- dollar general cashier say Jesus was like if she'd only ever met you as an example? And what about that homeless man you drove by while you were running your errands? Who is Jesus to him? It may seem childish, but your Sunday school teacher was telling you right when she told you to ask WWJD or what would Jesus do because they only know what Jesus would do if we do it. It's our job, church. It's not, it's what he taught us to do. No one else is going to be an example of Jesus to a hellbound world. It's our name that we have to live up to. We are Christians. We can't turn away from our name because it's challenging or because it's been diluted and misused. It's our name. We should strive to restore it to its original meaning because it's not just our name. It's God's name. We are called by the name of God. We sung about it many times today in our songs, and it stands as a challenge for us to live up to it, but it also carries a promise with it. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it reads, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. There it is, church. Do you want to reach the lost? Do you want to reach your city? Do you want God to heal your dark and dying land? If so, there's only one thing to do. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I'm asking that you would come forward to these altars and humble yourselves and pray. I ask that you would come as Christians and seek his face. I ask that you would pledge to turn from wickedness and to uphold his name. I ask that you would do this so that you could be heard, so that your sins can be forgiven, but also because we live in a dark and dying world, and Jesus is the only one who can heal our land.